0: My name is Lakin, and why don't you stand and worship with us this morning?
1: Today,
2: God has done so much for us. We want to make sure that we worship him for what he has done. Give him everything you got in this place. Let him know that you know that being a child of God means something huge, okay? Okay. Have a seat. Watch something pretty joyous over here. Hi, good
0: morning, everybody. I'm Erin Ashcraft, the children's minister here at uh, Capital City Christian Church, and this morning we have Kendra and her daughter Emma, who has decided to make Jesus
3: Christ her Lord and Savior this morning. So we are just the- yeah.
0: Repeat after your mom for the confession of faith. Okay. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and I accept Him in my personal Lord and Savior. I believe that Jesus
4: is the God, Christ, the Son of God, and accept Him as my
0: personal Lord and Savior. Mom, you say Because of your confession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I now. I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for forgiveness of your sins and the gift of God's Holy Spirit. Because of you your. Yeah, you do your nose. Mm-hmm. All right.
1: How about that? AM. That that's the way to start off a service right there, is it not? Fantastic. Well, my name is Jordan. I want to welcome you here to Capital City this morning. We are so glad that you guys have come to join us, and uh, I just want to start off by saying thank you to you guys. You know, a couple weeks ago, we had Easter here at Capital City, and we make a big ask of y'all every year. We ask to, You probably have memorized our, our saying, right? We ask you to come early. Park far and bring one, and we know you guys did those three things because we we changed up our services and you guys came many many of you to an earlier service than you normally do. We know you parked far because we did not have any parking issues, and we always have parking issues. So I appreciate that. Our parking team was amazed, and we know you brought people because we had two weeks ago one of the largest services we have ever had here for Easter. Almost 1,500 people were here at this place. So yes, amen. And we're not, you know, we're not just about. Numbers here at Capital City, certainly not about inflating numbers for one weekend, um, but we are about connecting people with Jesus and moving them along that path, okay? One way we do that is by getting them here. Had a big weekend a couple weekends ago. You can tell today not everybody that was here then is here now. So I'm just going to challenge us, our church family, reach out to some of those people. If you see somebody who, who's not here today who was a couple weeks ago, reach out to them. Let them know this is a 52-week-a-year faith, okay? So reach out to those people. Get them here. We really want to make sure that happens. I would be remiss... If I mentioned Easter and I didn't share a little bit of a vignette, something that happened in our family, um, my wonderful, wise wife was working our family through, our kids through a little Easter devotional leading up in the days to Easter. She had gotten, and she was reading them a little story every night, just kind of, you know, familiarize them with the biblical tale. And they've got to, these, these devotional writers have got to do a better job editing because I walked in one of the last nights, and I just caught the last sentence of this devotional. It said, she, she was reading out loud and said, And Jesus and his disciples went to their favorite place, an Olive Garden. And I thought, I've never connected with Jesus in this way. One of my favorite places is an Olive Garden. And I know, like you, that they weren't talking, surely they weren't talking about the modern American Italian restaurant. But then I got to thinking, you know, maybe so. We don't know when Olive Garden began its operations. And I could just imagine, Peter, the other disciples, you know, I mean, there's, it's a big group, right? 12, 13 plus, and they need a big restaurant. Olive Garden would serve that purpose. And we all know the best part about Olive Garden. What's the best part? The breadsticks, right? And they're free, and they're unlimited. That's why I go and just get water and breadsticks, and they hate me there. But I can imagine them, they're at the restaurant, you know, they're all gathered around. They've had several baskets of these breadsticks, and, you know, they're loving them. And Peter just says, you know, he grabs the waitress, says, ma'am, can we get another basket or two? And she says, I'm so sorry, we are completely out. I mean... And this is the first century. We don't have another truck coming. Like, we're, we're done. And Peter just kind of looks at the disciples, looks at Jesus. No, you're not. <laughs> Go check in the back. She goes back, check, finds breadsticks galore. It's a miracle. We've got all the bread we could ever use. And actually, it turns out they've been living off that free bread for 2,000 years. That's why it's still unlimited and free today. <laughs> Maybe that's how it happened. I don't know. I don't know if that a miracle occurred, but one definitely occurred 2,000 years ago on Easter, and that's what we celebrated a couple weeks ago. We'll celebrate it every week this year and uh, for every year to come. So we're so grateful that you were here a couple weeks ago. We want to get as many people back going forward as we can. As far as today goes, we've got a couple other things we want to make you aware of. First of all, uh, you probably, if you've been coming for any amount of time, you are aware of our getting started classes. We have 101, 201. Now we have 301 this one's going to go a little deeper so if you have been uh, maybe you have given your life to jesus maybe you recently got baptized but you're wanting to move along the faith journey into discipleship and connection on a deeper level we're going to have that available for you next week following the first and second services uh next sunday it'll be led by our associate pastor ben webb if you want to attend that just head after the service head straight out the main doors take a hard left to the connections room, we really want to. We, we're all about connecting people with Jesus, but we don't want to leave you there. We want to move you along that path. So make sure to attend that. Second of all, we've got a really cool opportunity this weekend. Uh, we're going to be hosting here at Capital City a good old-fashioned revival. It's going to be happening Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights. Each night at 6:30. Uh, and really cool feature is going to be one of the pre- preachers is going to be Brother Bob Russell. How many of you guys have heard of Brother Bob before? Heard him preach? Yeah, absolutely amazing man of God, amazing preacher. He is the uh, Head pastor for 40 years over at Southeast Christian in Louisville. He uh, grew that church from a couple hundred people in the 60s to uh, 20,000 before he left there. Amazing man of God. If you've not heard him speak, uh, you must come. uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you can come any of those nights starting at 630. We will have child care available that night. Uh, We'll also have his son, Rusty, will be preaching and a band called Sold Out, S-O-U-L apostrophe D, Sold Out, will be performing as well. So make sure to put that on your calendar if you can. Um, Now, in regard to today, um, how many of you guys, I got a question for you. How many of you guys have a happy place? Somewhere you can go, your troubles kind of melt away. So somebody shout it out. What's your happy place? Kitchen, that's good. Tybee Island, the beach. Yeah, those are good. All right. Somebody said church. We're very proud of you. You're very holy. Thank (laughs) you for that. All right. I too, those are all good. It's, It's good to have a happy place. I too have a happy place. I think we have a picture of it up here. Here we are. I don't know if you guys can see that. Anybody familiar with My Happy Place? I mean, just one of the best restaurants on the face of the planet as far as I'm concerned. And I even have a happy meal there. You might have a happy meal. There's my happy meal. That is the Thai Smile three-flavored chicken. Okay, just one of the best things you could ever eat. It doesn't matter what kind of day I'm having, whether it's good or bad. If I go to Thai Smile, I have the three-flavored chicken. I'm going to be happier. Just how it works. But the thing that about happiness for me is, you know, I can go, I can eat, I can get happy. Happiness just doesn't last, does it? It's pretty fleeting. Um, and, you know, we as American Christians in particular, we have a little bit of an unhealthy relationship with happiness, I think. It's in our founding document, right? Declaration of Independence. We have the right, we believe we have the right to pursue happiness. But as Christians, that's our right as Americans. But as Christians, we are guaranteed no such right. Right? You read the Bible? There's no guarantee in there of happiness. The closest we can come in the Bible that you see is a concept known as joy, right? And joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Last week, Doc began a new series. We're looking at the fruits of the Spirit, and he said something that I thought was just incredibly profound, as he often does. Kind of blew my mind. He said, you don't, if you want to pursue the fruits of the Spirit, you don't pursue them by pursuing them individually. You can't manufacture them for yourself. I can't manufacture peace or patience. But if I want to have the fruit of the Spirit... I don't pursue the individual fruit. I pursue the spirit. And then those things are given to me. Pretty amazing concept to think about. Well, this week, Ben is gonna drill down a little bit more on the specific fruit known as joy and kind of show us the difference between what biblical joy looks like and our concept of happiness. He's gonna do that here in just a few minutes. In the meantime, though, I'm gonna ask you guys to stand back up and we're gonna give praise to the ultimate giver of joy.
0: i
2: We thank you for jesus christ the one who has allowed us to be your children his work on the cross has changed us his work has made us free has given us what we need in order to actually thrive in this life to give us something in abundance and i ask that when we gather together every time that we're reminded of that and when we're away from each other father we're also reminded of it every moment our joy comes not from what is happening around us, but because of what Jesus Christ has done on a cross. What he has done has changed me. What he has done has changed all of history. We want to be able to give you glory, give you honor, and praise you for what you have done. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you guys have a seat for a second? I'm about to go around the tables and remember what Jesus Christ has done. He has given us a brand new life. and He's given us a brand new family. And every time that we gather together, we're able to, enjoy, with joy, be able to celebrate what he has done. And when we gather around and go to the tables, we're reminded again of what it took for us to be able to have this family, what it took to have this future, what it took to have a, a purpose in life outside of ourselves. His death on a cross is what brings us into this moment. When we go to the tables in a few moments, you'll be able to uh, see a piece of bread, and a little a bit of juice, and these are just memorial um, elements to what he has done. His body was broken. And so when we take the bread, it's a way for us to remember that his body was sacrificed for us. And when we drink the juice, we're reminded that his blood was shed. It's a way for us to constantly keep this in mind. What it is that Jesus Christ has done has allowed us to know God as we do, as our Father. And this is a, a tremendous thing. If this is your home, a church home that you come to, uh, to call your home, you want to be able to give an offering, this is at the time that you do that as well. There's a black box at each of the stations, and when you want to give something that comes from your heart that is cheerful and excited about what he has done, make sure that you, uh, you know, take advantage of that as well. We do this kind of a weird thing at at uh, Cap City called the generous bucket as well. So if you have an offering that you want to give that's great, if you have something that's kind of burning in your in your heart that you want to give beyond the offering that you chose to bring, that white bucket there at each of the stations is for you to be a little bit extra generous for people in in need in this community. So what I want you to do is go ahead and stand back up again now that you've had a bit of a respite and you can go ahead and go to the tables right now and remember what he has done.
3: As Jordan mentioned a few moments ago, last week we started this sermon series and we're looking at the fruit of the spirit. And we're taking all this from a book called Believe written by a guy named Randy Frazee. This is the third sermon series we've done out of that book. It's the final section of it where we're looking at the things that we're becoming and we're titling it Remastered. Because the reality is, is once you come into contact and into a relationship with God, you're choosing a new master you're moving from, from a place of being in charge to giving authority to Him. And when that happens, it means there's some changes that need to take place. There's some things that have to be reworked, right? And there's a big idea kind of behind this whole series. We believe that God loves us just the way we are, but we believe that He loves us too much to let us stay that way. He wants something better for us, He wants something better in us. And so it means that if you're a Jesus follower, you have to embrace the idea of change and growth. And that's really hard. Really hard. So last week, Dog talked briefly about love. I use that word briefly, very intentionally, very briefly, a very little bit. He didn't do it justice really, right? There's so much more he could have said, but in his defense, I believe that love is the fruit of the Spirit. And that as you look at the other nine things that we're going to talk about over the course of the next nine weeks, starting today, that, that really those are the practical applications of what love is. It's how love is played out in this world. It's how it's, it's how it's shown to our world. And so in that sense, we're going to make up for the poor job that Doc did last week. Because <laughs> we're going to be talking about love over and over and over again. All right. And this morning, we're going to talk about joy. Now, Joy is kind of an interesting thing. Before we can talk about it, we have to define it. There's lots of different ways that joy is defined. I've, I've noticed this in my life. I've, I've been married for uh, almost 19 years now, and on occasion, we don't agree. Now, it's very rare, all right, very rare, but occasionally, we have a disagreement And in those moments, sometimes, not always, but sometimes the disagreement is centered around vocabulary, which I never would have expected before I was married. But I learned, I've learned since being married, that sometimes the words I say don't mean the same thing to her that they mean to me. And sometimes the words she says don't mean the same thing to me that they mean to her. There's a difference of definition, right? And so we have to start in this conversation on joy, we have to start with a focus on definitions here to make sure that we're all talking about the same word. And there's lots of ways that joy is defined. The Oxford uh, Dictionary says that joy is great pleasure and happiness. I think that's a bad definition. I think that's too small. I think it's, it's missing some very important parts. I, I think it's missing the depth of what joy is. The Merriam-Webster uh, Dictionary calls it this, an emotion that is evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune. Again, I, I think that there's something missing there. I think it's bigger than that. When we're talking about joy, when we're trying to define this little word joy here, I think it's so much deeper and richer than that. I think that joy includes feelings of good cheer. I think it includes a vibrant happiness. But but joy in its more full, even a spiritual meaning, I think involves a lot more to it. I think it's deep rooted. I think it's an inspired kind of a happiness. I think that there's a feeling that goes with it, but I think it's more than a feeling. I think it's a choice. I think sometimes joy is a choice. It's a lasting emo- emotion that comes from a choice. Joy endures through difficult moments. See, I don't think happiness is joy. Happiness isn't joy. It's, it's fleeting. It's temporary. It's not long-lasting. Happiness depends on people making you happy or something good happening or something going your way, right? Right? And the problem with that is that things don't always happen that way. People don't always bring you happiness and things don't always go your way. And it's the same with pleasure. It's fleeting. It's not long-lasting. It's dependent on other people making you happy or something good happening or something going your way. Joy, although it is accompanied by emotion, I think is way more than an emotion. It's rooted. It's a choice, which means that when something happens that wouldn't make you happy, you can still have joy. When something happens that doesn't bring you pleasure, you can still have joy. And so this is how I would define it, all right? This is how I would define joy. And there's a good chance you may not like it. That's fine. You don't have to like this definition, but it is what we're going to talk about today, okay? Joy is an enduring realization. And that word realization, it means like a perspective. It's a, it's a knowing. It, it's an understanding of something, Right? Joy is an enduring realization that is deeply rooted in a choice to trust God. Joy is an enduring realization, not an emotion, but an understanding, a realization, a knowledge, a perspective that is deeply rooted in a choice that you made in the past and that you continue to make over and over and over again. Now you may, again, push back against this definition. But, If joy is more than an emotion, and if, if joy has a connection and has something to do with God, if if this word at the end of it all plays an important and valuable role in us understanding what joy is, then this next statement is also true, okay? Only Jesus followers have a reason to be joyful. Let that one linger a little bit, all right? you may push back. You may not like that definition. You may not like that. You may find this statement offensive, especially if you aren't a Jesus follower, right? And here's the deal. You don't have to agree with me, but I think it's true. I think it's true for several reasons. And let's start by breaking that definition down even more, all right? Joy is an enduring realization that's deeply rooted in a choice to trust God, if it's an enduring realization, then it must be based off of something that is enduring. And you're not going to find that with something that's happiness or, or pleasure, right? It doesn't go in those same kinds of ways. God is enduring, but happiness, pleasure, those things aren't. They're temporary. They're, they rise and fall depending on the moment, right? And if joy is deeply rooted, if joy is a deeply rooted choice of trust, then the thing you're trusting had better be trustworthy, right? If you remove God from that definition, you lose the ability for joy to exist. Nothing else is enduring. Nothing else is perfect in your ability to trust. Joy isn't an emotion. It's rooted in a moment in history. An emotion is ever-changing, but joy is permanent. It's a realization. It's an understanding. It's a knowledge in something that is unchanging. In fact, I think happiness is the counterfeit version of joy. You know what counterfeits are? When I was uh, middle school age, somewhere between 7th and ninth grade, my family went out to Washington, D.C. to visit my uncle who, who lived out there, and he took us to all the tourist places, okay? And so we're standing in line to be able to get tickets to go to the White House. And we're standing there, and there's these people on the sidewalks who are selling these different items, and they're all trash. They're not any value to me. They didn't mean anything to me until I saw the guy who was selling Oakley sunglasses, right? And I knew that my parents would never buy me Oakley sunglasses. That was an irresponsible financial decision, okay? It would be dumb of them to have done that, but this guy was selling them for eight bucks. (laughs) And I thought I could probably talk my parents into that one, right? And I did. I got the glasses, and I wore them everywhere, and I was proud of them. And I remember when I got back home to West Texas, I'm wearing these glasses, and my friends looked at me and said, those are fake I didn't know fakes existed. Like, what do you mean fake? I didn't know what counterfeit was at this point, right? I didn't know that you could buy cheap sunglasses and put a sticker on them and call them Oakley's. (laughs) I didn't know that's how it worked, right? That's what happiness is. Happiness is that counterfeit version of joy. It looks similar enough that we settle for it, that we accept it, that we buy it, but it's not the same. You see, happiness comes from resting in the blessings instead of the blesser. Happiness is whenever we get excited about the things that are around us instead of paying attention to the one who gave them to us. We care about creation around us while we ignore the creator. That's happiness. That's not joy. That's happiness. It's it's lacking the things in our life that are temporary, not eternal. There's an elation that comes whenever we get things that we really think will make our lives great. And that elation, that happiness, that pleasure is as fleeting as the moment that we experience it, isn't it? There's this time when Jesus is hanging out with his disciples. He had just sent them off on these little missionary journeys. He sent them off two by two, kind of like Noah, right? He sent them off two by two, and they go out, and they're, they're, uh, they're preaching, and they're, they're actually healing. They're doing all this really cool stuff, and when they get back together, they're celebrating. The disciples are just like minds blown, can't believe they just did all the things that they did. They're super excited, and they're specifically celebrating the fact that they were able to cast out evil spirits from people, Right? Like they're celebrating, they are rejoicing, all right? And then Jesus says this, this is so interesting. It's Luke chapter 10, verse 20. He says, Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Don't you rejoice? Don't you find happiness when you accomplish something, when you do good work? But Jesus says, No, 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 we're not going to rejoice that you accomplished something, that you did something good. Instead, we're going to rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you see the difference? Happiness can come from the work that we do and the things that we accomplish, but joy comes from the work that Jesus does. There's a big difference, isn't there? Because Jesus' work doesn't ever fail, and it doesn't ever fade. Jesus' work doesn't ever quit. There isn't anything that you or I could ever do that could possibly compare with having our names written in heaven. So we read stuff like this. It's Philippians chapter three, verse one. that says, rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in in what is permanent. We root our joy in something that isn't shifting. And the one permanent moment in history that Jesus' followers hold on to is the resurrection. I love this from Romans 5.2. We rejoice not in the things that we've done, not in the things we've accomplished. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the moment that Jesus walks out of the grave. It's Easter. It's resurrection. It's the glory of God, Right? See, Jesus' followers have an incredible perspective. It's an incredible realization, and it can't be rivaled by anything else. We believe that Jesus raised from the dead. We believe in his promise that he's going to return. We believe that there's more than just this life. So when life gets hard, when Jesus' followers experience pain and grief, our perspective, our realization, Tells us that there's a permanence in the resurrecting work of Jesus. It's why joy is an enduring realization. It's greater than an emotion. It's deeply rooted in Jesus' resurrection because Jesus doesn't stop resurrecting because you have cancer, his resurrection endures. Jesus doesn't stop resurrecting because your family is struggling. His resurrection endures. He doesn't stop resurrecting because your bills are piling up. His resurrection endures. He doesn't stop resurrecting because you hate your job. He doesn't stop resurrecting because sin has its grip on you. Do you see it? Every single one of those things kills happiness. Cancer, family struggles, bills, your job, sin. Man, it all kills happiness happiness there's no room for 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 happiness in any of that is there but i know jesus followers in each of those situations who are hurting and they're sad and they're sorrowful they're in pain they're carrying great grief and they have great joy for jesus followers the resurrection is front and center Joy is unwavering because even in the midst of the storms of this life, we live in the constant shadow of the resurrection. Hebrews 12:2 puts it this way. It says that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame because of the joy that was set before him. That Jesus had this perspective, this is a powerful, powerful statement. Jesus had this perspective that in the midst of a painful place, he had joy because he could see forward to something. He's looking at his own resurrection. He knows that there's something powerful coming and that in the midst of pain, he can still have joy. For the Jesus follower, this is so significant to us. Jesus had joy in the midst of difficulty. We're told just before that verse that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. So Jesus, we have this ability to look back at the resurrection. Jesus had this ability to look forward to the resurrection. He had joy and pain. We have this ability to look back at the resurrection where we can have joy. And we also have this promise of being able to look forward this day when he returns. That joy can exist despite what's happening in the world around us, despite what's happening in my life because of where my eyes are fixed. And that means that only Jesus' followers have a reason to be joyful. That's because we have a view of the resurrection. And because of that, there's this other thing that comes into play. And this is really weird, all right? Like, I think if you are not a Jesus follower, you're gonna hear this and you're gonna think this is really strange. If you are a Jesus follower, I think there's a really good chance that you're gonna think this is strange, okay? This is a really weird thing of what it looks like to follow Jesus, okay? But if, if only Jesus followers can be joyful, I think that we have to kind of pay attention to something that prevents joy. And, and so here's, here's a statement. Jesus followers can have joy because they confess and leave sin. Kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? It's not maybe exactly what you would have guessed. If you aren't a Jesus follower, I'm sure that sounds really, really strange. I mean calling something a sin is is actually kind of a downer, right? Doesn't sound like joy here's the deal. If happiness is built on things that are temporary, and if joy is built on something that is eternal and enduring, if those things are true, then we have to consider our relationship with God and what prevents joy. And David gives us an incredible insight into this. This is in Psalm chapter 32, starting in verse 3. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. It sounds like he's having a really bad day and then he says then i acknowledged my sin to you david is a really interesting guy he has an incredible relationship with god and he writes this poem song thing all right and and he has this relationship with God where God even says that David is a man after his own heart they're very very close and just before these words David would write and say this blessed is the man whose sin the lord does not count against him and in whose spirit there is no deceit David is not talking about having a bad day he's talking about keeping silent because of his sin and he gives us a picture of what it looks like to be in a relationship with God and to have sin and it's not pretty It sounds like groaning all day long. It feels like strength sapped. It looks like heat of summer. It's a miserable, hard place to be because sin separates us from God. And sin leads to guilt and guilt leads to shame and shame leads to paranoia. And these are not words that you would use when you're talking about happy. These aren't words you would use to talk about joy, even, right? It's hard to think of being happy or joyful when you're paranoid. But David's words took a turn, they changed. He says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and everything changes. It reminds me of another place where uh, david would write uh, restore to me the joy of your salvation another song little poem that he writes he says that he finds joy in in salvation he says restore to me the joy of your salvation we find the joy of salvation whenever we find ourselves confessing sin we find salvation when we acknowledge our own sin and so david confesses everything He confesses and leaves behind his sin and he finds joy. And I love the twist that happens in Psalm 32. It starts out with that really awful perspective of what it looks like to be in relationship with God and to be in sin. But it finishes completely different. It just builds in this great crescendo, this great celebration at the end. It finishes with God's unfailing love and rejoicing and singing. And we read this, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous, seeing all you who are upright in heart. Being right with God is a joyous place to be and being right with God is something only for Jesus' followers. Now we define joy this way. We started with this. We said joy is an enduring realization that is deeply rooted in a choice to trust God and if that's true, And again, you don't have to agree with that definition, but if it's true, it means that only Jesus' followers have a reason to be joyful. The resurrection and the confessing and leaving of sin, these are things that Jesus' followers do, right? It's something that we believe in, and these things allow joy to take root in our lives. But if you are a Jesus follower and you feel somewhat privileged because of your access to joy, then you need to hear this. If it's true that only Jesus followers have a reason to be joyful, then you should know that it's also true that every Jesus follower should be joyful. Like it's an expectation that to not be joyful would actually communicate something different. And unfortunately, that's not exactly the reputations Christians have, is it? Jesus says that the world is gonna know us as being his followers by how we love one another. And that's not the reputation that we have largely because we are not seen as a joyful, loving bunch, but instead we're seen more for our complaining and negativity and grumpy, unhappy attitudes. What if we were joyful? What if, what if Christians were joyful? Have you ever been around someone who has an infectious joy? At first it bothers you, doesn't it? Like at first it kind of annoys you and it bothers you, but over time you realize I just want to hang out with them. Like it doesn't matter what's happening in the world, their joy becomes infections. I just want to be a part of that. I want to be close enough to that because I find it taking root in me. I find myself to be more happy when I'm around them. I find more joy in myself when I'm around them within, within those kind of relationships, right? It becomes infections. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it make us more loving or at least look more loving to the world around us if we were joyful? And what does it say about you if you are a follower of Jesus, but you don't seem to have joy in your life? There's a moment in John 16 where Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he tells them that he expects for them to be joyful. It looks like this it's in verse 20. He says, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. It will. It's not a maybe, it's not a I hope, it's not a fingers crossed, it will. It will turn to joy. Now we should pay attention to this. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's anticipating the day that he's going to die and the world is gonna rejoice while they mourn. It's gonna be a dark couple days, isn't it? But Jesus also anticipated the resurrection. We've already talked about that part, right? And because Jesus could look forward and see that moment coming, he expected for the disciples to, to experience joy. He expected them to lose their minds. That's what we're really saying here, right? He expected that at whatever point he raised them from the dead, that everything else in life is going to pale in comparison, that they're going to have mind-blowing experiences. This isn't something that people just get to experience, right? To see someone resurrected, this is a big moment, and it should cause them joy. Uh, I'm sure it caused many, many different things for them, many different thoughts and feelings, but among them certainly would have been joy, the contradiction for a Jesus follower who professes to be a child of the one and only God to wear a gloomy countenance, isn't it? Because to be a Jesus follower is to be joyful, and to be joyful is a Jesus follower. Unfortunately, sometimes we walk around like our dog just died. And it's just like day after day, like we just have this countenance about us. We walk through life in such a way that it looks like, like we just are bitter and unhappy at everything when in reality we should be the most upbeat and happy and positive thinking people the world has ever seen, even in the midst of grief. In fact, I love this, the very next verse from Jesus, verse 21, he goes into this, he says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Now I've not experienced this personally, but I've witnessed it a few times, right? And I've seen a woman who is in pain filled with joy. There's this thing within us that we think that sadness or sorrow must be the opposite of joy, right? Like you can't be happy. No, no, that's the counterfeit version. The counterfeit version of joy is happiness. And you can't be sorrowful and sad while being happy. That's true. But that's not the opposite of joy. The opposite of joy isn't sad and sorrow. In fact, you can see that they function together. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. And that's significant. That's a significant point. Doc has this really strange thing about him. I I mean, he has a bunch, all right, but there's there's one I want to highlight now. Doc is a Cowboys fan, and by and large, most of us have forgiven him for this, right? But he has this weird thing, okay? Doc doesn't watch Cowboys games, I don't know if you guys know this about him. He records them, and then after the game's over, he checks the final score, and if the Cowboys won, he'll watch it. And if they lost, he doesn't. I find this so offensive, right? Like, I, I just absolutely hate that he does this. I think he's cheating as a fan. I think that if the Cowboys knew he was doing this, they would, like, remove him from membership because like this is this is the wrong way to be a fan of a team isn't it but here's the thing as we're talking about it like he glows like he lights up talking about this because he 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 says this really interesting thing happens he'll check the final score he sees the cowboys win he'll go in and watch a game all right and then the cowboys are losing they look awful they're playing bad and the worse they are the happier he gets because he knows how the story ends right like this joy wells up in him because he has a hope in how this is going to play out. Not a, not a hope like I have. When I watch games, I'm miserable. I'm tormented. It's torture to me because I don't know what's going to happen and my team always lets me down. Even when they're winning, I'm miserable, right? It's a completely different perspective. I hate everything about what Doc does with this. It is highly offensive to me and I'm thinking about maybe adopting it. <laughs> Right? Because it just, it unfortunately makes some sense. It's more hopeful and joyful than I am. And that's the power of hope, isn't it? That's the power of hope. First Peter 1 Peter 1.6 says it this way. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. I love this. We're rejoicing right now, even though in the midst of it we're suffering grief. Grief, pain, sorrow, these aren't opposites of joy. They coexist with joy. They can be in the same place at the same time. It's because of our hope Our hope is based on an event in the past and the expectation of the future. Hope allows us to have joy in all circumstances. Hope says, as nice as all these things are here on earth, or even as awful as all these things are here on earth, I've got something better waiting for me. And that's powerful. It's that Hebrews passage we mentioned earlier. Jesus had this vision looking forward. He had a joy that was set before him, even in the midst of his pains. His joy was rooted in something permanent, not his temporary situation. His joy kept him going, even while it overlapped with his suffering. There's a quote from a guy named Tim Keller. He's a preacher and and, and a great thinker, great writer. He says this. He says, a real Christian is a person who's got a furnace of joy inside that kicks up as the sorrow comes in and overwhelms the sorrow, but the sorrow is still there. The heat kicks on, but the cold air still exists all around. Nonetheless, you're warm, right? the midst of winter, when it's really cold and that furnace kicks on and you feel the warmth and it's comforting, that's what it looks like to be a a Christian. That's what it looks like to have joy. It's a warmth that's coming from a consistent, dependable source, no matter how cold the world gets around you. That's what Jesus' followers should look like. That's why we should have this joy about us, this lightness, this this happiness about us. Jesus doesn't finish there, though. One more verse, verse 22. He says, so with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice. He reminds them, you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. It's enduring. It's permanent. It's settled in. Again, Keller compares it to a boat. He says, joy is the buoyancy that results from the enjoyment of the unchanging privileges we have in God. A follower of Jesus looks like a boat that just stays floating no matter what. No matter how stormy the waters get, Jesus' followers just stay floating. We rise and we fall with the waves, but we are unwavering because joy perseveres. Only Jesus' followers Have a reason to be joyful. Every Jesus follower should be joyful. Joy is an enduring realization. Rooted in a deeply rooted in a choice to trust God. There's a guy named Jerry Bridges. He wrote a book called The Fruitful Life. It's a doc it's a it's a resource that Doc and I are using a lot for this sermon series as he looks at the fruit of the Spirit, and he had this great quote. He said, we can be joyless Christians or we can be joyful Christians. We can go through life bored, glum, and complaining or we can rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. We can rejoice in our names being written in heaven. We can rejoice in the hope of an eternal inheritance. It is both our privilege and our duty to be joyful, only Jesus' followers can be joyful, truly joyful in all circumstances, because we're the ones who believe in an event that stabilizes everything we experience in this world. That's what makes it different from happiness or pleasure. It's built on something stable. But pay special attention to this. He doesn't just finish the quote there, and I think this is really interesting. He goes on, he says, to be joyless is to dishonor God and deny his love and his control over our lives. And this next phrase is haunting. I want you to wrestle with this one. He calls it practical atheism. To be joyful is to experience the power of the Holy Spirit within us and to say to a watching world, our God reigns. Every Jesus follower should be joyful because if you aren't, it's like you don't really believe in what it is you say you believe. It's as if you say you believe in Jesus, but you're living in this world as if there is no God. It's practical atheism. It's an intentional ignoring of what you say you believe. Guys, don't settle for the cheap substitutes. Don't let your life become something about the pursuit of happiness and pleasure. Don't pursue them. They're counterfeits. They're temporary. They aren't enduring. Fix your eyes on Jesus and his resurrection, your true sources of joy. Maybe that's something that you've never decided on your own. Maybe you've never put yourself in a relationship with God. Maybe, hopefully today, if if you have not been in a relationship with Jesus, maybe today's the day where you realize that your life has been missing joy. You've been missing that stabilizing factor. If that's something you want, I'd love for you to come up and have that conversation with me. As you saw earlier, the water is warm. And we would love for you to become part of this family. However this sits with you, if there's something you need to pray about, we've got elders in prayer room. Again, I'm up here. I'd love to pray with you, talk with you. Whatever it may be, let the Holy Spirit move you. Why don't you stand? This is Jeff and Beth Kaiser. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. All right. Uh, I, I don't want to say Kaiser because that's no, not right. It's no, Kaiser. It's not right. it's not right. All right. So this is Jeff and Beth Kaiser and they have been attending here for a bit. They love what's going on here and they want to be a part of it and that's really cool. They are longtime believers yeah. and, uh, and our Savior. We've been family for a long time but they're going to be family here and that's really cool. So I'm going to ask you that same thing to make that same confession of faith. I believe, I believe, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus the Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. God. And my Lord and Savior. And my, Lord and my Lord and Savior. Savior. Amen. Excellent. Amen. Welcome, them. Okay. I, uh That last song is one of my favorite songs, and I love the line that says that uh, it was a borrowed tomb. I love that. He borrowed a tomb for three days because he wasn't going to use it. I love the idea that God has robbed the grave. I just think that's powerful. I'll tell you, that makes me smile. That makes me live with joy. And I hope that among all else, as we leave here this morning, that you would live in the shadow of the resurrection. It puts a smile on our face, and it shows the world the love that our God has for us and has for them. So go and be that. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. All right?